invite you to remain standing with me here for just a moment and uh, go ahead and grab your Bible. Let's turn to Old Testament book of Ezra. We're going to read here chapter 3 to begin our time of worship. Great joy we have to have living hope in Jesus Christ. Ezra chapter 3, let's read verses 1 through 13. It says, When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. And then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to, burn, to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant money that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Verse 8 says, Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Josadak made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity, they appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout, and they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and the Levites and heads of the fathers' houses Old men who had seen the first house wept aloud with a loud voice. When they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning as a people in need. We come to you offering nothing but our brokenness, nothing but our sin. Nothing to offer you that you have not first given to us. And Father, we too, your word tells us, were a people once in exile separated from you because of sin, but you in your mercy sent us your son, Jesus, our living hope, 
and he has laid the foundation of a new temple. He is the cornerstone. Your apostles are its foundation, and we today, your church, we are the structure that you are building up. Something you promised that not even the gates of hell would be able to overcome. So Father, I pray this morning as once again you lay new foundation that in this room there would be the sound of rejoicing. But Father, today we also ask that you and your mercy would break us and that we would come to grips fully with the devastating effects of sin and that we would exalt boldly the solution, which is the message of your gospel. Holy Spirit, have your way in this place this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And uh, I'll just invite you to stay uh, right there in Ezra chapter 3. We are going to look at a few other passages of Scripture that we'll turn to this morning. I think you'll see today this is one of those passages of Scripture that's going to really bring a lot of the different pieces of God's Word uh, together from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So be prepared to turn a, a little bit uh, this morning as we begin our time together. Um, one of our family's favorite activities to do together is to go out to Hunting Island. We typically get a pass as a family every single year, and we go every opportunity that we possibly get. We love the beach. We love the sun. Uh, it's a great opportunity for our boys who are eight, five, and three just to run and, and expend energy to their heart's content. Um, you know, as mom and dad at this stage of life, it's not like really enjoying and relaxing the beach. You're trying to really keep your kids alive when you go to the beach. But we really do have a good time when, when we go together. And so uh, it's with great disappointment. A, a few years ago when uh, we had a, a cycle of hurricanes that swept through here over the course of a few years, that there were periods of time where Hunting Island was closed. And this always caused a lot of disappointment. We try to go every opportunity that we can. And so particularly after Hurricane Matthew a few years ago, Hunting Island had been closed down for several months. We were so excited about finally being able to return. We hadn't been able to use our pass as much as we'd wanted to use it. So we were eager to put it to use. And the morning that we finally had the opportunity once again to return to Hunting Island, we got up early and we packed up our car and we loaded the boys in and we got out there as early as we possibly could. And when we pulled onto the property, uh, there was rejoicing. We were excited. We wanted to be back. We were eager to be back at the beach. But very quickly, as we pulled into Hunting Island, those feelings of joy were very quickly tempered with feelings of sorrow. Because we came back with suddenly this new awareness of devastation that had occurred. And while Hunting Island was still Hunting Island and we still had the opportunity to go to the beach, it broke our hearts to see trees that had fallen. It broke our hearts to see roads that had flooded and parts of the beach that we could no longer go to or parts of the park that we could no longer go visit. And so as excited as we were to return to Hunting Island, those feelings were, were mingled with sorrow as we saw the devastation of something that once was. When we looked first in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah last week, we saw that the people of God were coming off of 70 years in exile. The Lord had promised to make a great nation out of his people, but he warned them of idolatry. He warned them of what would happen if they turned their backs against him. And because they ignored the persistent warnings of the prophets, the people turned their backs against the Lord, and ultimately he allows them to be conquered by the Babylonians, carried off into exile. But the Lord had also promised through the prophet Jeremiah that the Babylonians themselves would be conquered. A couple of hundred years before this, the Lord had prophesied through Isaiah that there would be a king named 
named Cyrus, who would issue a decree that would allow God's people to not just return to their home and rebuild their place of worship. So last week in chapters 1 and 2, we saw the first phase of this return. Under the leadership of Zerubbabel, who was uh, the royal descendant of King Jehoiakim, and also the leadership of Jeshua, who was of the tribe of Levi, who was going to be the priest, these two men lead the way back home, and today we're going to start seeing a picture of what happens when God moves his people. When God moves among his people, oftentimes there's a very mixed response There's joy of those who are coming to faith in Christ. There's joy of those who are discovering something for the first time. But then there's also the sorrow of those who look at the devastating consequences of sin in their lives and on the surrounding world. And it brings them to a place of weeping. Today we're going to see what happens when God moves his people. And when God moves his people, a couple of different things happen at once. We return to the security of worship And at the same time, we deal with the reality of our sin. When God moves his people, we return into the security of worship as we deal honestly with the reality of our sin. And that's what we see unfolding in Ezra chapter 3. So we've just read the passage just a moment ago. We're going to dive right in working through this text today. When God moves his people, we see first that we reestablish the priority of worship. There's no time to waste as they return home. They come back to Jerusalem And before they're even finished building their homes, before they're even finished getting settled in, before they rebuild the walls of the city, even before they rebuild the temple, the people gather together as one man at the temple site, and they begin the work of rebuilding the altar, which was led by Jeshua and Zerubbabel. Verse 3 says that they stood in fear of the people of the land. They were in fear for their security, but instead of first trying to secure their homes, instead of first trying to fortify the walls, instead of first uh, going to the grocery store and doing laundry and unpacking and doing all the things that we do when we've returned from a long trip, the very first thing they restore is worship. They come back to the place of worship. Verse 1 says that this was in the seventh month in the first year of their return. And on the Jewish calendar, this is a very important month. It's during this seventh month that they uh, observe the Day of Atonement. They also observe the Feast of Booths. And the Day of Atonement, if you're not familiar, this was a very solemn day among God's people. It was a, a day where the high priest would go one day a year into the holiest place in the temple, and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people. So their first priority is to rebuild the altar and to reinstitute the sacrifices. If you go uh, to Exodus chapter 29, you would find uh, the verses that give us the instruction for the morning and the evening sacrifice. Uh, The Lord tells Moses that these are supposed to be offered in the morning and the evening, supposed to be offered at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and it was in this place the Lord promised Moses, I will meet with you and I will speak to you. Through the blood sacrifice, the Lord promised to dwell among his people and to be their God. So before they rebuild the walls of city, they reestablish the priorities of worship. They stand in fear of their neighbors, but they know what led them away the first time. It's interesting that this effort's being led by Zerubbabel and by Jeshua because it was decades before that the wicked kings and the wicked priests were the ones who led them away from the worship of God. And they've seen the consequences now of what happens when they turn their backs against the Lord. So as much as they are in fear for their own safety, they know that their ultimate security is not in rebuilding walls, it's in rebuilding worship. It's returning to the Lord. Their returning home wasn't just physical, it was spiritual. 
It was being reconciled to God after they had turned back from their sins. I want you to turn with me in your Bible here for just a moment uh, to the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 10. And we're going to look at verses 19 through 25 because this is one of those passages, again, in the New Testament where we really start to see the Old Testament be fulfilled and come to life. And what we find in Hebrews chapter 10 is how this is ultimately fulfilled in the church through Jesus Christ and, and how our worship uh, reflects this message of the gospel in the hope that we have been reconciled to Christ. So Hebrews chapter 10, and let's read verses 19 through 25. These are important verses for us today, church, because we're in a place where once again, as the people of God, we need to recover the priority of worship. We need to reestablish the priority of worship, and our foundation for doing this is our reconciliation to the Lord. The writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, Remember, this was a work that was reserved only for the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. But this is now something we get to do, all of us who have faith in Christ. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, this is Jesus, this is what he says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day of the Lord drawing near." When God moves his people, one of the first movements of his people is to reestablish the priority of worship. And you and I are living in a time when it's important for us, it's critical now that we reestablish this priority. The sad reality of the current state of the church is that we are more likely than almost any previous generation of Christians in our nation's history to not make a priority out of the gathering of God's people. And there's an important, necessary gospel connection that we see here in this passage. The writer of Hebrews says that we draw near with the full assurance of knowing that we enter in through the blood of Jesus Christ. Every time you and I gather together, we are being reminded that we can now, all of us, not just a single high priest, but all of us, we can confidently come into the presence of the Lord as those who have been sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, many of you know right now we're uh, about to start taking steps, Lord willing, to begin building our first permanent facility. And uh, we don't yet have lots of cool drawings and all the architectural information, but there's one thing I can definitively tell you that you're going to find when this building is built, and it's this. When we come in through our sanctuary, when we gather together for worship, whatever that room is, we're going to have red doors. And there's a reason for this. Some of you already know where I'm going with this. There's a reason for this. We are going to be far from the very first church to ever do this. Many of you grew up in churches like this, but this is an old Christian tradition that the doors of the sanctuary are painted red so that as we pass through, we are reminded that we get to confidently enter into the presence of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. As we live in a world that surrounds us, as our enemies surround us, as we live in fear, we have to be reminded that ultimately security is not found in our walls, it's in worship. 
Jesus is our security. Jesus is our confidence. He is our safety, and we get to boldly enter in to the presence of the Lord through his blood. Another small, subtle thing that maybe you've noticed over the last few weeks, why don't you just grab that worship guide that's around you for just a moment. And if you look at the cover of this worship guide, we, we have this designated as the worship guide for Lord's Day worship. Now, um, as we pulled this together as a staff through the month of December, we had the first mock-up of this, and a couple of our staff were looking at this saying like, man, this is nostalgia. Like, I feel like I'm back in grandma's church right now, right? Like, some of us grew up with this, if you, especially if you came from a little bit more maybe of a liturgical background, that's, that's normal for you. And here's what we need to understand this morning, is uh, all of the days belong to the Lord, right? Every day is his. It's not like he's got just one and he's given the, the other six to us. They all belong to him. But we've seen it, the movement of the people of God through the centuries is that we have always prioritized the gathering of God's people for worship. There were so many priorities they could have focused on when they came back to Jerusalem. They had not even rebuilt their homes. They had not rebuilt the walls of the city. They were leaving themselves vulnerable to attack, but their number one priority was reestablishing worship. And this is a priority that needs to be reestablished in our lives. Not just corporately as a body of believers, but in our homes, with our children, in our daily devotion to the Lord. When God moves his people, his people reestablish the priority of worship. Second, we see that when God moves his people, we recover faithful devotion to the word. When God moves his people, we recover faithful devotion to the word. So on top of reinstituting sacrifice, they also return to obedience. There's a little bit of a different angle here in terms of their observance of the feast and the reinstituting of the sacrifice. Coming back to the sacrifice was focused more on what we would call justification. It was having their sins atoned for so that they could be reconciled and brought back into right relationship with the Lord. They could be justified. This is what happens when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. But the Lord is not just concerned about our justification. He is also concerned about our sanctification. Not just that we are made right, not just that we are saved from our sins, but that we are day by day walking in obedience to the word of God as he makes us more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. And so right away, it's the seventh month, they do not hesitate to return to obedience. In the seventh month, on top of the Day of Atonement, they would also observe the Feast of Booths. This was a very important feast among the Jewish people. It was a celebratory feast where uh, at the end of the harvest, they would celebrate that the Lord had provided for their needs every step of the way. And what they would do for seven days, it was really interesting, like a, like a camping trip. They would seven days, they would construct these temporary shelters, and they would live in these, and it was a reminder of, of when they were in the wilderness as they were leaving from exile to move to the promised land. They would dwell in these booths for seven days to remember those times in that movement and to ultimately celebrate the provision of the Lord. And in the same way that the Lord had provided for his people at the first exodus by plundering the Egyptians, we saw last week he provided for this second exodus as they plundered the Persians. The Lord uh, had stirred up the hearts of the people to give God's people what they needed. Cyrus reopens the vault in, to the temple treasury so they could have everything they needed to reinstitute worship when they returned to their home. The Lord provides their need every step of the way, and the people respond by giving back to him. For the building of the temple, it says the people began to give freely to make sure the masons had what they needed. The Lord had already made, it, made their provision. And this is something, church, we have to understand about our giving. Is, is you know, we, we, I know I have this tendency. I think we all have this tendency. Western Americans, we tend to be a very individualistic people. 
We want to be a hardworking people. We have pride in this understanding of pulling up ourselves by our bootstraps, and I worked hard for this, and I earned this. But church, let's not lose sight of this here. Every good thing is only given to us because it was given to us by the Lord. It's not really ours. It's not really ours. We're called to simply steward uh, faithfully the resources that the Lord has entrusted to us. And so when we give, we're not giving to the Lord anything that already, doesn't already belong to him. It's not so much giving the Lord something that he needs. It's giving and responding in worship out of the overflow of our heart that he has already provided for our needs. And as followers of Jesus, this is our fundamental driving factor when it comes to giving. We don't give because we want more in return. We give because we've already been given everything in Christ. The Lord has provided their needs, and out of an act of worship, they respond by giving back to him the provision he had already made possible for them. They come out of exile, the Lord provides their needs, but the foundation of the temple hasn't been laid. So they give to the work, the masons, the builders, they get after it, they start working furiously to lay the foundation. Haven't built the homes yet, haven't built the walls yet, haven't built the temple yet, but they want to be reconciled to the Lord. They want to walk in faithful obedience to the Lord. They're like, we are not going back to exile. Like, at least in this moment, they're like, we've been there, we have done that, we got the t-shirt, not interested again. No return trips. So, so, so they, they are eager to get to work. They're eager to be walking in obedience to the Lord. And, and this is what happens when God moves and stirs among his people. When he stirs the heart of his people, we're not just excited about people being saved. We become equally as excited about walking in obedience to the word. This is how we can know as a church that the Lord's really working and moving, is that we are eager to be not just only reading the word of God, but doing the word of God. I heard a really amazing story uh, from a family in our church this past week, right before worship in this service. And uh, they have a middle school daughter. And this year they've been doing that F260 Bible reading plan that Nate talked about a little bit earlier that we've talked about a lot as a church family. I'm just curious, show of hands, how many of you are working through uh, that Bible plan or the full Bible reading plan this year? Man, praise God for that. that that's amazing. And so they got going the first few days of the year. And uh, as you've seen this year, that's a five-day-a-week plan. There's a couple of grace days that are built in. You've got freedom on those other two days, maybe to read something you've already read that week or to catch up if you've fallen behind. And their daughter, who's in middle school, they, they get through the first week, they've done the five readings, and she gets to day six. And she goes to mom and dad, she says, well, what are we reading today? Mom says, well, well we've, it's, it's five days a week, and so we don't actually have a reading for today. And she goes, I don't like that at all. She's like, I'm going to go read my Bible. She goes back, and I was like, man, praise God for that. And I hear testimonies like this, I'm like, Lord, this a thousand times over that we would be eager not just to be in your word, but to do your word, to walk in faithful obedience to your word. Listen, church, understand, believing in Jesus Christ, it is not just about your justification, it's about your sanctification. And so many of us, I fear, we are settling for so much less. The Lord does not just intend to save your soul from hell. He intends for you to experience joy and happiness in the here and now as we walk in faithful obedience to his word. When the Lord moves among his people, we're not just eager to return to worship. We're eager to walk in obedience. Now let's start to look a little bit at the response of the people. When God moves among his people, when he moves his people, we see third that we rejoice in each step of the Lord's ongoing work. So verses 8 through 11 show us that the young men, uh, those 20 and older basically who had returned, they get busy to, with the work of rebuilding the altar and get busy with the work of rebuilding the temple. And they're eager to see this happen. Now understand, many of these who are coming back from exile, they have never been home. 
They've never been in Jerusalem. They had never seen Solomon's temple. They had never experienced it in its former glory. They had never had the opportunity to properly worship the Lord as the Lord intended for them to worship. They'd never seen this before. And so it's amazing as the foundation of the temple is laid, those who see the foundation laid, many of them begin to rejoice. I mean, they just erupt in praise. And the word tells us that this praise can be heard from all over the place. I remember about, I think it was about 20 years ago, I was growing up when, in Boone, North Carolina is where I'm from. And uh, so, so many of you in this area, you're familiar. There is a massive college football rivalry between Appalachian State and Georgia Southern. And I'm App State, and they beat Georgia Southern this year. I just thought I'd mention that. And Alabama won the national championship this week as well. I thought I'd also mention that. And so it's a good, good year of football for me. And, and so uh, when, when they played, I remember back, I think it was about middle school, they, they were tied up in a, in a tight game. And Georgia Southern scores at the end of the game with almost no time left on the clock and they go up ahead of App State, and then they wanted to go for two uh, so that App State couldn't kick a field goal to tie or win. But as they go for two, App State intercepts the pass and returns it, and with no time left on the clock, App won the game. Now, the house where I grew up, I wasn't at this game this day, this day. We were watching it on TV, but the house I grew up was about five miles from campus. And when that play happened, you could hear the roar from Kid Brewer Stadium cut all the way through the mountains into our house. We could hear it over our own TV and over our own rejoicing. And you know what this sound is here in Exodus 3? It's the sound of salvation. It's people who for the first time we're starting to see, we're going to get to worship the Lord. We are going to enter into relationship with him. We are being brought back to him. They lead the song of David just the way David did at the, the establishment of the foundation of the temple. And they praise the Lord and they thank the Lord for his goodness and for his kindness, and for his mercy, and for his rejoicing. And you might ask the question again, well, why are they so excited about just laying the foundation? It's not like the project is finished. But there's a whole temple that we have to still put on this. And you know, th this is a mistake, I think, that we make sometimes as followers of Christ, is, is we look at our lives, and we recognize an unfinished product. We look at our lives, and, and we're not quite what we want to be. We're not quite there yet. Like we know that we're saved and we know that the foundation is laid, but we're struggling and we're frustrated with our lack of spiritual progress. You know, a few weeks ago, I talked to a brother who had started to read through the Bible last year and he said, just asking him how he was doing and, and he said, man, I'm, I'm good. He was like, I want to try this read through the Bible again this year. He's like, last year, you know, I got halfway through and everything with 2020, it just blow it up and I'm, I'm really frustrated with myself. And, and, and I knew his story and I knew his background. I said, yeah, man, but how much were you reading the Bible before last year? He's like, man, I never read the Bible before last year. I was like, brother, you went from never reading the Bible to reading half of it in a year. So yes, I mean, it's, church, it's good and right and true that we be frustrated sometimes with our lack of spiritual progress. That we not be, that it's that, that good to be frustrated that we're not the finished product in the way that we want to be. But listen, you might not yet be complete, but you know what's good news? You're no longer in captivity. And that itself is reason for rejoicing. Don't be so focused on perfection that you forget to rejoice in your progress. Your foundation has been laid. And yes, we want to read our Bibles more. Yes, we want to pray more. Yes, we want to give more. Yes, we want to serve more. Yes, we want to be devoted to worship. Yes, we want to be, be overcoming the sin in our lives. But don't so overlook the progress of the Holy Spirit in your life that you, that you forget to rejoice in the work that he's done. It's the famous words of John Newton that, that I want to turn our attention to here for just a moment. In his personal testimony, and you've probably heard this before, yet, though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, 
I can truly say I am not what I once was. I'm not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan, and I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge by the grace of God, I am what I am. Church, you may not be what you want to be. You may not be what you ought to be, but praise God, you're not who you used to be. You may not yet be complete, but you're no longer captive, and this is reason for rejoicing. We rejoice in a finished work because a new foundation has been laid. We see fourth, then, an opposite reaction. You know, this is almost an anticlimactic ending to this story. And we, we saw last week how there's a few moments like this in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah where there's just this massive buildup, and it feels like that's where the story should end, is just with rejoicing. You've returned home. The temple's being rebuilt. You're returning to worship. It feels like that's a great ending to that story. But the books of Ezra and Nehemiah leave us a few different moments where you just kind of get to the end of the text and you scratch your head. You're like, huh? Like, how did it possibly leave off like this? There was also an opposite reaction among the older generation. We see that when they returned, some saw that the temple was not going to be restored to its former glory. I want to read this again from verses 12 and 13 back in Ezra chapter 3. It says, But many of the priests and the Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice, when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, the many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the shout of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. So it's a couple of different responses. When God moves among his people, we can rejoice in the progress that's being made, but we also see another response. We recognize the severity of our sin, and we weep. The older generation had seen the glory of the temple. They had seen its magnificence. They had seen its beauty. They had been to Hunting Island before the hurricane. And they were so excited to come back, but they saw very quickly as soon as they arrived on the scene, this isn't, isn't going to be what it used to be. And the reason they weep, the reason they're broken, the reason they're so grieved is because for the first time, for the first time, they are having to deal honestly with the consequences of their sin. They know that the ruins of this temple, they could even see from its foundations. Before the building even started to be constructed, they could see right away from its foundations, this is not going to be what it used to be, and it grieves them because they know that it's their sin that got them to this place. They know that it's their sin that's brought this devastation. They know that it's their sin that led them into exile. They know that it was necessary for the Lord to break them before he could build them back up. And they see the devastation firsthand. And for the very first time, they're coming to grips with those consequences, and they weep. But I want you to see something that we don't see here in Ezra chapter 3. And this is one of those amazing places where the pieces of our Bible uh, start to come together. So obscure, uh, minor prophet we call them, but major messages. We need to never forget this. I want you to find, you may need your table of contents for this. I'm going to give you a second. Uh, the book of Haggai in the Old Testament so more towards the end of the Old Testament. And this is one of those places, you know, we, when you look at the layout of the order of the books of your Bible, you don't see Haggai next to Ezra and Nehemiah. And sometimes that layout causes us to forget that, that sometimes these events were actually overlapping. And it's during this time, it's in this moment of devastation that the Lord speaks his words through the prophet Haggai. So Haggai chapter 2, I'll give you an extra few seconds to find that one. Where's all my Bible drill kids at? I bet you're nailing it right now. Yeah, getting after it. Haggai chapter 2. 
And we're going to read here uh, verses 1 through 9. This is such a powerful message. This is what the Lord sends them in the midst of all of their mourning, in the midst of their weeping. This is the message he speaks to them in this moment through the prophet Haggai. Haggai chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 9. It says, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnants of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong. Everybody say, be strong. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you, when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater. Everybody say greater. Greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Well, how is the latter form of this place greater than the former glory? Turn with me now uh, to the book of First Peter in the New Testament. First Peter, we're going to look at chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 4 through 10. This is now the fullness of this glory. This is now being fulfilled, and we're going to see here through whom this is fulfilled. He said the, for, the latter glory will be greater than the former. This was the promise he made. And so this is 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's read verses 4 through 10. It says, As you come to him, this is Jesus, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a royal priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But look at this, verse 9. But you, this is for us, church. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you were God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The Lord was going once again to rebuild a new glorious temple. But the greatest glory was not going to come in a building that was made by human hands. The greatest glory was going to come not just in a place, but a people. It's going to come through you and I. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, and the apostles have laid the new foundation, and you and I, not walls made by human hands, but you and I are being today built up as the body of Christ. And that's why he tells Haggai to speak to the people, tell them, fear not, the, the latter glory will be greater than the former. 
Yes, look at the devastating impacts and the consequences of your sin, but something greater is going to be built in this place. Something greater is going to be built up than what has been torn down. And church, it's greater because through Jesus Christ, the fullness of the glory of God has come to man. And it does not dwell in temples made by human hands. It dwells in us. We are that body. We are that building. We are that structure that once again is being built up. And so, yes, we look at our lives. And church, I think it is important that we weep over the consequences of our sins. But even as we weep, let's not forget that there is a new way that's been made through Jesus Christ. But I've got to be honest with us this morning. Um, I think before we can fully understand what this means, that God is going to build us. I think we do need to spend a moment here grappling with the reality that sometimes for God to build us, it's necessary first for him to break us. Last night, as we've done every Saturday night through the month of January, we gathered uh, here together for prayer and for worship. And at the end of our prayer and worship times the last couple of weeks, we've just had an opportunity. If someone's had just a word on on their hearts that they wanted to be able to share with us, just to challenge us or to encourage us. And the one recurring theme uh, of the personal testimonies that were shared in this room last night was brokenness over sin. I mean, just brothers and sisters who are just grieved over the sin that's in their hearts, who's grieved over the sins that's in their lives. And and church, if there's one thing I in particular was grieved for last night, it wasn't just brokenness over sin for me. At times, it's a lack of brokenness over sin. It's looking at the state of our world right now, and, and instead of pressing into this, instead of feeling this, instead of, instead of truly seeing the brokenness of sin for what it is, I try to escape. I try to check out, and, and man, we are coming off the heels of a year. 2020, I mean, this is carried over again into 2021, and we're getting dangerously close to a place, many of us are maybe already in this place, that when the brokenness of the world comes on full display, not only do we not feel it, we have grown completely cold and numb. And we continue to see the problems in our world because, and the problems in our nation because we, as the body of Christ, continue and we refuse to deal honestly with the brokenness of sin. We refuse to deal honestly with the sin of racism. We just call it media-driven hype. It's just going to go away with the news cycle and then we'll move on. We refuse to deal with it honestly. We refuse to deal honestly with the wickedness of abortion. We refuse to deal honestly with the wickedness of sexual sin. We refuse to deal honestly with spiritual apathy. We refuse to deal honestly with the fact that we numb ourselves with hours of streaming content and social media while the covers of our Bibles collect dust. We become comfortable with this. We become complacent with this. And and I just shared with those gathered last night because I've had these moments in prayer the last few weeks where I've just asked the Lord, it's like, Lord, what else are you going to have to take away from us? Because the, the consistent testimony of the word of God is that if we will not break over sin, the Lord will break us over our sin. How long are we going to continue to excuse the wickedness of our leaders in the name of political expediency? As we conflate the message of the gospel, as we saw last week, with, with liberal progressivism and American nationalism. How long are we going to do this? How much longer do we really think the Lord's going to tolerate this? How much longer do we believe the Lord is really going to grant religious liberty to a nation that's exporting a corrupt message? How much longer? What's it going to take for the people of God to get on their knees? And listen, church, I'm I'm sharing this with you this morning in confession. I shared this with our staff a couple of weeks ago. I've shared this at our last couple of prayer nights. 
I think we just, we've got to come to the place where, where as I pray and as, as I've prayed with our staff and elders, as we prayed together last night, as we worship together, as we'll do here in just a few moments again, the same way we did last week, I just feel it and I just sense it. There's just this wall that we've set up. We refuse to break. We start checking out. Like we're thinking about the playoff game this afternoon and dinner for community group tonight and kids' homework, church. We've got to break over sin before the Lord breaks us. And if we won't break, we have to be people of faith who are willing to invite his brokenness and see that he will use this ultimately to restore and to bring about a greater glory. David Platt has a book called Something Needs to Change, and I gave out several copies of this about a year ago, I think this this weekend, and I I revisited that this weekend because I was reminded of something that he said in this book, and I just want this to sit on our hearts this morning here for just a moment as we begin to close Here in this book, we talk a lot about the need to know what we believe in our heads, yet I wonder if we have forgotten to feel what we believe in our hearts. How else are we able to explain our ability to sit in services where we sing songs and hear sermons celebrating how Jesus is the hope of the world, yet rarely, if ever, fall on our faces weeping? For those who don't have this hope and then take action to make this hope known to them. We are more concerned right now with winning elections than weeping over sin. Church, until we break, the Lord will not move. Until we break, the Lord will not move. Listen, they had the protection of of a government leader. They had policies to protect their religious freedom. They had, once again, a secure place of worship. Church, we are nothing without the presence of God. When we return to him, we come back to his presence. He will meet with us when we repent of our sin and we come back to him. So what's our response to all of this today? I just want to ask you just a few questions of reflection as we begin to close. I want you to ask this morning, maybe how do you need to reestablish the priority of worship? And I don't just mean the corporate gathering of the body every single week. How do you need to reestablish the priority of worship in your home? Just setting apart that time to be in the Word of God and to pray every single day, to turn off, for heaven's sake, the screens, and to open up our And again, I, this, is, this is sort of a personal thing. I challenge you, just, just get in a paper Bible. Like, like don't invite that distraction. Don't, don't put yourself in position where your attention could be easily drawn away. Let, we be people that are in the Word of God, that we're seeking His Word, that we're praying over His Word. How do you need to reestablish the priority of worship in your day? How do we need to reestablish the priority of worship with our families? You know, we have three little boys at home. And those of you who are trying to do family worship, you know, like, I, just so you, none of you live under any illusions, like my family, because I'm a pastor, like, we float around in robes with halos over our head, quoting scripture to each other all day. Like, we have three boys. Chaos. I mean, just trying to sit down and have a family time of worship for 10 minutes. It's, it's nuts. And we were, for a long time, tried to do this at the end of the day, and it wasn't working. They're at the end of their attention span. And so we had to readjust our calendar as a family and start doing this in the morning at the breakfast, breakfast table because they're, they're held captive for a moment. They got something to do with their hands and their mouths. And actually listen for a few moments. Where do you need to reestablish the priority of worship in your family? Where do you need to reestablish the priority of worship? Where do you need to, in, in, uh, for yourself individually, and where do we need to reestablish the priority of worship as a body? The Word of God commands us all the more as we see the day of the Lord drawing near. We're not getting further and further from the return of Christ. We're getting closer and closer. 
The cultural trend right now is to gather all the less. Our biblical mandate is to gather all the more. Where do we need to reestablish the priority of worship? Second, just ask the question, how are you doing in your devotion to the Word? How are you doing? Do you take time not just to read it, but to pause and to consider its implications for your life? To ask basic reflective questions. What does this passage tell me about God the Father? What does it tell me about God the Son? What does it tell me about God the Holy Spirit? Is there a sin that I need to avoid? Is there a command that I need to obey? Is there a promise that I can claim? How does it point me to Jesus Christ as my only hope of salvation? Don't just read the Word. Let's be people who also do the Word. How are you doing in your devotion to the Word? How can you invite the accountability of brothers and sisters in your life, a a small group of three or four people that you can text throughout the course of the week, hey, how's your time in the Word going? And people who will actually hold you accountable when you're falling away and encourage you and challenge you as brothers and sisters in the Lord. This is one of the greatest gifts I have in my life are brothers who can grab me by the collar and say, what are you doing? and help us get our lives back on track. How are you doing your devotion to the Word? Third, in what areas can you celebrate spiritual growth? Listen, you're not yet perfect, but the promise of the Word of God is that we are being built up. We are being built up on this foundation of Jesus Christ and the apostles, and Jesus is going to build this church, and the gates of hell are not going to overcome it. You will be brought to completion. It's Philippians 1.6, the Lord will see your salvation through to the end. So don't be so obsessed over the fact that you're not yet perfect that you forget to rejoice in your progress. Listen, yeah, maybe you're, you're in church once a month right now. That's better than we used to never be here. Rejoice in that progress. Maybe you're only reading your Bible once a week. That's better than when you used to not read it at all. Maybe you're still struggling and stumbling into some sins, but, but it's a little less frequent than it used to be. And rejoice that the work of the Holy Spirit's being done in your life as the Lord progressively works to make you more like his son, Jesus Christ. One of the greatest ways to lose the joy of your salvation is to be frustrated over the fact that you're not yet perfect. And this is the good news of the gospel, is that through the blood of Jesus Christ, your heavenly Father already sees you through his perfection. And that is our confidence as we stumble and we take one step at a time. We can rejoice in the work of the Holy Spirit. You might not be who you want to be. You might not be who you ought to be. Praise God, you're not who you used to be. The new foundation has been laid, and you can be confident that the Lord is going to build this up to the end. And last, I just want to ask this morning, have I honestly assessed the effects of my sin? The Lord's going to build us. First, he has to break us. I just want to ask you this morning, have you numbed yourself to the reality of sin? It is not maturity for you as a follower of Jesus to look at the brokenness of our world and cynically brush it off and say, not my problem. We should be grieved over what's happening in our world. We should be grieved over the sin that's in our hearts. We should be broken over what's happening in our lives. And this morning, listen, you might be here saying, as someone who's a follower of Jesus, I know that the Word of God tells me that my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, but right now it feels like the tent of a homeless sinner. And you may be here this morning feeling like a shell of who you used to be, that maybe your heart is not burning for the Lord in the way that it once was. You you remember back to that moment when you first came to faith in Christ, and you were eager to tell people. You were eager to be in the Word of God. You were eager for the pastor to open up his Bible, and you were eager to take notes, and you were eager to learn, and you were eager to grow. You were eager to serve. You were eager to be a part of this because you knew the joy of salvation in that moment. But everything that's happened, maybe over the last year, just over the events of your life, you've grown cold and you've grown numb. 
The promise and the hope that you have today is that even if you feel like a shell of who you used to be, the Lord tears down so that he can be built up. And the glory of the latter will be greater than the glory of the former. If the Lord is bringing to that place today, church, to break you, I beg you, let him break you. He breaks us down to build us up. And you may be here today rejoicing because new foundation is laid. And so in just a moment, we're going to come to the table, and we're going to come with this equal mixture of weeping and of rejoicing. We rejoice because of what's been made possible for us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but we also weep, and we repent because we see the devastating consequences of our sin. And regardless of where you land this morning, your hope is equally the same. A new work can be done through you through faith in Jesus Christ, and he can build up what the enemy has torn down. So I just want you to bow your heads with me here for a moment. And, and here in just a moment, listen, some of you were here last week with us, some of you weren't. And here in just a moment, we are going to do exactly what we did last week. La- last week, we had a great time of rejoicing. As we gave the opportunity for, for those who, who just felt like they had grown complacent in their faith to receive prayer and encouragement, just to confess that here in the safety of brothers and sisters. Church, last week, we, we saw three people profess faith in Jesus Christ. We rejoiced in new foundations being laid and some wept over the reality of their sin and found new hope once again in forgiveness in Christ. And here in just a moment, we're going to do the same thing again. There's no confusion about what's about to happen in this room. If you're here today and you say, listen, the Lord's laid foundation. I'm seeing Jesus for the first time. I'm seeing that my salvation can be found in him. I want to turn from my sins. I want to profess faith in Jesus Christ. Call on his name and be saved. Or if you're here this morning, you say, look, I am a follower of Jesus. My love has grown cold. I have grown numb to my sin. I have become numb to the brokenness of this world. And this morning, I want the Lord to break me down so he can build me back up. If that's you, if you're in either one of those groups this morning, in just a second, I'm going to give you the opportunity to stand up in this room. Just so there's no confusion whatsoever. We're not doing this because we want to shame you, because we want to embarrass you. We're doing this because we want to affirm you. We want to celebrate you. We want to encourage you. There is no shame whatsoever in returning to the Lord. He is your security. Nothing else we build our lives on in this world could take the priority of worship. And nothing can give us greater safety and security than faith in Him. So this morning, sitting in this room, you say, I'm rejoicing today because foundation has been laid. I have found faith in Jesus Christ. Or if you're here today, just to say very honestly, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I am mourning over what once was, and I am desperate for the Lord to build something new. If that's you this morning, right now, I just want you to stand up where you are across this room from your seats, if that's you. Say, foundation has been laid. I want to profess faith in Jesus Christ. We trust the work of the Lord that's happening in your heart right now. So, Father, as we close our, our time together this morning, we pray for those who are even sitting right now, just you're working and you're moving in their hearts and in their midst. And we just ask, Father, in faith that you would continue to help us recover our joy, that we would deal honestly with the effects of our sin. 
as we turn our hearts and our lives back to you.